Before we, uh, before we start, here's what I want to do. I would love it if uh, all the people who went to New Orleans with us last week, if you would stand up. Yeah, give them a, give them a hand. I, I, I wanted y'all to stand and, and stay standing for a second. <clears throat> I wanted y'all to stand uh, and, and I just wanted to like recognize you guys for this. Uh, I, was, I was absolutely blown away last week uh, by how hard y'all worked. Um, and, and just by the flexibility and just the selfless attitude that was displayed in that team. Um, I, I don't know about for you. In fact, I, I know for some of you this was true. It was definitely true for me. That trip didn't turn out to be the trip that I expected it to be. And for you, it may have been different reasons than it was for me. But uh, for those who don't know, it, it started dumping rain on us halfway through the trip. And so uh, most of our projects were outside. And so we had to completely switch around what we were doing. Uh, but it was, it was amazing uh, to work with this group and their willingness to to shift around, and, and honestly, the rain was a God thing because it put us in the places that really we needed to be at that moment, and it allowed us to minister to some really, uh, in some really cool situations. So anyways, I just want to recognize you guys in front of the group, and y'all, y'all, can, y'all can sit. Um, tonight, uh, we are, we're going to step away from 1 Timothy. Uh, we'll go back to 1 Timothy next week, but tonight, I want to go to a text, a passage in the Bible that I absolutely love to teach. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And I want to go to this text. One, I love to teach it. It's, it's an incredibly cool text. But, but two, I really tonight want to just share with you some things that have been heavy on my heart. Specifically one thing uh, that, is, that is heavy on my heart, and it's not necessarily something that's been heavy on my heart just this past couple days or week, uh, but something that I feel like is constantly there, heavy on my heart. And, uh, and I want you to hear, hear that. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And, and before we just jump right in, I want to... I want, I want to give you a little bit of context, and, and we need to know a little bit about Paul's relationship with uh, the people in Corinth, which is who this letter, 2 Corinthians, was written to. Paul had really invested so much into this church, so much into these people. Uh, and we'll look at more of what that looked like later, but, but what you need to see is as soon as he left Corinth, he spent a lot of time in Corinth, as soon as he left, things started to get messed up. There were these people that came in and they started to uh, really try to intentionally mess up what Paul had done there. And it wasn't about Paul, it was about the gospel that he had brought to the people in Corinth, the story of Jesus. These guys came in and tried to mess it up, tried to discredit Paul and his whole ministry and all of his work. And one of the things that the guys did, other than just try to talk trash about Paul and discredit his ministry, was they brought in uh, these letters of recommendation from people on the outside and they presented it to the people in Corinth and said, look, These are important people from other cities who are recommending us to you. And they would read the letters and they'd see what these people said about these other guys coming in. And they would, basically the letters were saying, listen to these new guys and forget about Paul. Forget about all the things that he had taught you, taught them about Jesus. And so these guys came in and and honestly what they were doing was, was, was really, really messed up. So we get to 2 Corinthians 3 and I know it's weird to just hop into the middle of a, a book or a letter and start reading. That's what we're doing tonight though. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 3, verse, verse 1, he, he poses, Paul, he poses two uh, rhetorical questions for the people in Corinth, okay? And listen to these, because it's really, it's really interesting what he does here. He says, one, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or <clears throat> do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So he poses two, recommendations, or two, two questions, both in direct regard to these people who've come in to try to discredit his ministry. The first question he says is, uh, do we need to uh, commend ourselves to you? In other words, do we need to brag about ourselves and our work and the, the places we've been to, the things we've done to you so that 
so that we'll be worthy to be listened to in your eyes. And the rhetorical question has a very obvious and emphatic answer of what? No. Another way to phrase that question or, or another way that, to explain what he's trying to get across is, do we need to come in here? And when he's saying we, it's Paul and Timothy. You look at the beginning of the book and, and he tells you, that's who's writing this letter. He's saying, do we need to talk trash about these other guys that have come in and talk trash about us so that essentially in talking them down, we're talking ourselves up? And the answer is no. But then he says, what about this? Do we need to bring to you letters of recommendation? Now, let me explain this a little bit more. It's, it's so similar to us today. Like when you graduate, you're going to have a resume. And at the bottom of that resume, what's it going to say? It's going to say references furnished upon request. And these references are people who will write letters of recommendation for you to your future or hopefully your future company that you're working with or business that you're working with or whoever. Well, just like we use letters of recommendation today, they use letter, uh, letters of recommendation then. And, and what Paul's saying is, even though letters of recommendation are not bad, or we're not bad then, he's saying, we don't need them. So do we need to write letters of, or have letters of recommendation for you? No. I spent way too much time on that. So look at verse 2. Verse 2, he says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. So a little bit more context here. Paul helped establish this church in Corinth. And, and as soon as he had left... As soon as he left, things started to go bad. Uh, he got bad reports that the people in Corinth, they were beginning to fall into all sorts of sin and immorality. They were beginning to abandon the faith, and then these false teachers came in and started talking trash about Paul. So he writes a letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians is this first letter that he writes, hence the name First Corinthians. And in this letter, he deals with a lot of these issues. I mean, if you've ever read First Corinthians, I mean, Paul, he, he goes... He, he digs deep, man. Like, he bows up to these people, and he goes straight to the heart of some of these really big and honestly sometimes awkward issues to talk about. But he, he writes that letter, and then after that letter, um, there's, there's kind of a gap between 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, what we're reading tonight. And in that gap, there's two things that we can pretty, be pretty sure about uh, that happened. One is Paul visited Corinth between writing these two letters. And two, he wrote another letter that we don't have access to now in between these two letters. And here's what happened in that gap when he visited and then he wrote this other letter. He specifically addressed these guys that had come in to try and discredit his ministry. But here's what was happening. At this point, at this point, the church in Corinth was totally turning their back on the gospel, which is what Paul had brought these Corinthians. And they were, they were coming to a point where they had totally abandoned everything that Paul had taught them and totally turned their back on Paul. So all the while, Paul is really concerned about the state of the Corinthian church. He even says, though, if you back up to chapter 2 uh, in 2 Corinthians, verse 12, listen to what he says. He says, now, when I went to Troas, which was a city in, in that area, to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So here's, here's what was happening. Paul was so concerned about what was happening in this Corinthian church. It was falling apart that when he gets to Troas and he finds that he has the freedom in Troas to preach the gospel, which if you know anything about Paul, when he went to a city, if he saw that the Lord was opening the door for him there to preach about Jesus to people who had never heard before, what did he do? Man, he, he jumped all over that opportunity. He did not ever walk away from the opportunity to preach the gospel. But what does he say he does here? He says he gets to Troas, saw that the Lord had opened a door for him to preach the gospel, but he couldn't stay there. 
And he says he couldn't stay there because he had no peace of mind. And the reason he had no peace of mind is he was so stressed out and concerned, probably to the point of losing sleep, over the Corinthian church. So he leaves, and he leaves looking for some sort of update on what's happening with the Corinthians. Now, he might have, might have, should have, or we might think, why didn't he just go to Corinth and check himself? And the reason I don't think he went to Corinth to check himself is because I don't think he thought he was welcome in Corinth. Like, that's how far the Corinthians had turned away from Paul. Okay, so we read further on. Uh, if you actually skip all the way forward to uh, chapter 7, verse 5, we, we get a little bit more of an update of what happened. He says, for when we, Paul and Timothy, came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. And then verse 6 says this, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So this, another, this other dude comes into play here named Titus. And it says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So Paul leaves Troas because he's really upset about the Corinthians and he's wanting to find out what's going on with them. And finally, Titus, who had been with the Corinthians, comes to Paul, finds him, and gives him an update. And the update that he gives Paul is an awesome update. You know, Paul's expecting him to say, look, it's really gotten worse. But Titus says, no, it's gotten a lot better. They're starting to turn away from their immorality. And actually, you even see in the, in the language that he uses here, he's saying that the Corinthians were becoming concerned about Paul now. And they had deep sorrow for Paul in the way that they had treated Paul and turned their back on Paul. And it's, again, it's not Paul, but essentially Jesus and his teachings that they were turning their back on. Here, here's what I want you to see. The Corinthians, they had been totally transformed like they had gone from this to something completely different. They had been completely and, and totally transformed. They were not who they used to be. Now, now you read a little further in, in 2 Corinthians 3, which is, is where we are tonight. Verse 3, listen to what he says next. So he says, you show, talking to the Corinthians, you show that you are a letter from Christ. Going back to this idea of the letter of recommendation. You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says they don't need a letter of recommendation because the change that they could see in the Corinthians was proof that their ministry was legit. Are you following me so far? He's saying we don't need this letter of recommendation like these other guys because the change that has happened in, in the Corinthians' lives as a result of their ministry proves right there that what Paul and Timothy were doing was totally legit. But listen to how Paul phrases this. He doesn't accredit the transformation in the Corinthians' lives to himself. He says, you show that you're a letter from Christ, written, kind of skip there to the end, with the spirit of the living God. Paul didn't change Corinth. God working through Paul is what changed Corinth, the people of Corinth. Paul's ministry, his leadership, his, his life was empowered by the spirit of the living God. And because of that, his ministry transformed people's lives. This is what defined Paul's ministry. Paul didn't have to hype up his own ministry. It hyped up itself. It spoke for itself. Let your game speak for yourself, fellas, on the basketball court tomorrow night. It's true in ministry, too. He's saying, look, I don't need letters of recommendation because my ministry speaks for itself. And as I'm reading this, I, I'm thinking, man, I want so bad for this to be a reflection of, of the impact that I have. 
I, I want so bad for this to define the type of impact that I have. I want so bad for this to define my life. I want so bad for this to define my ministry. And, and really, every single, one of us in those, in the, every single one of us in this room who knows Jesus should be wanting this. We should all want this. We should all want this so bad to define us and the impact that we have on the people around us and our lives and our ministry. We can't impact our campuses. We can't impact our world. We cannot. You and I cannot impact our campuses or our world, but God working through us can. And for that to be the case, there's some things that we need to see that define someone who is empowered by the spirit of the living God, like Paul was. And so tonight we're actually gonna work backwards. I know this is gonna be kind of weird, but we started in chapter three, verse one. Now we're gonna go up the page instead of down the page. Uh, and we're gonna go to chapter two, verse 17, and work, work backwards from there. Here, here's the first thing you need to hear me say. Here, here's, here's what we're wanting to know here. What, what, are, what are some things that we have to see that define someone who is empowered by the spirit of the living God? Because we want this. We want to be able to have an impact that transforms lives like Paul's ministry did. And so the first thing is this. Hear, hear this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Paul was not in it for himself. Paul wasn't in it for himself. If you look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, listen to what he says. He says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. He says, unlike so many, we don't peddle the word, for, uh, the word of God for profit. Times haven't changed. Like you go 2,000 years ago, back to first century AD, and people traveled all over way back then preaching the word for no other reason than their own personal gain. You fast forward 2,000 years, 21st century AD, and the same thing is happening. People are traveling all over preaching the Bible for no other reason than their own personal gain. I mean, you see it in the most probably obvious thing, which they aren't so popular anymore, but televangelists. You know, they're standing there on TV and they're telling you, you know, real people who follow, people who are really following Jesus, they, they, they're willing to give their stuff away. So send me your money. And then they're the ones who are not giving their stuff away and they're rolling on dubs and driving Rolls Royce and flying nothing but first class and living in mansions and all kinds of luxury. But it's not just uh, televangelists. I mean, there's, there's just pastors, there's preachers who they are not in it for, for Jesus, they are in it for themselves. They're in it to gain fame, popularity, prestige, and you see that in a lot of ways. But let me, let me tell you this. It's not just, you know, pastors, preachers, televangelists, and people like that. I am convinced that there are people here tonight, as I speak, who are peddling the word of God. Some of you fellas came here tonight, and, and as soon as you walked through the door, you made sure that that girl you got a crush on uh, that's sitting up here in the first row or second row saw you walk in. You know, so you're over there, you know, you're making sure you take some notes from what I say tonight. You're, you're making sure that you kind of took some mental notes from the songs that we sang because tomorrow on campus when you accidentally run into her, you're, you're gonna strike your best godly man pose and then you're gonna start a conversation with her and you're gonna say something like, man, you know, what did you think about Overflow last night? And then you're gonna insert into the conversation, oh man, man, that, that one thing that was said just totally convicted me. And you remember that song? And she's gonna be like, Man, that's so amazing. Like, oh my, yeah, I felt the same way. And you're gonna be like, I know, right? Look, I love talking. Let's go have some coffee together after this. Like, that's gonna be, you're, that's called peddling the word of God. And, and you know, girls, you're laughing because you know that's true. But, but honestly, uh, y'all do the same thing, just in slightly different ways. Um, but, but he says, don't, we, we don't peddle the word of God. We don't do it for our own profit. Use this word, peddle. 
The word peddler, so I did, I did a little bit of research on this word, trying to do a little word study and, and, and really what it was meant or what, what is meant by this word. And there's another word that continued to come up over and over as I was studying this word peddler. And it's the word huckster. Anybody ever heard that word huckster before? Okay, like, yeah, one person, maybe two. Uh, I had never heard it before. I was like, man, am I supposed to know this? Is my vocabulary that limited? Uh, but I, I did a little more research on the word huckster. And, and basically, here's what a huckster is. A huckster is somebody who does anything and everything they can to sell you something that is either fraud, fake, or just really bad quality at a price that is just ridiculously uh, too high. So, so let me give you an example of what a huckster is, okay, or a peddler is. Um, anybody in here ever been out of the country and, and been to a market in another country where you can't speak their language at all? Okay, quite a few of you. So you've probably met some hucksters. Um, a couple years ago, I was in Asia, and uh, I, I was in this market. Now, I don't know why. I don't wear sunglasses normally, uh, but... Uh, Whenever I'm in another country, for whatever reason, I end up buying sunglasses, and they never make it home with me, but they're always cheap. And so I was going to this one market, and, and I was looking for some sunglasses. So I come, up to this, uh, I come up to this one booth where this lady is, and she doesn't speak any English. I don't speak any whatever they spoke. And uh, I walk up, and she can tell I'm looking for sunglasses. Well, she knew enough English to, uh, to point to her sunglasses and say, look, Ray-Ban. And so I, uh, <clears throat> I look at these glasses, and they say Ray-Ban on them. They're obviously not Ray-Bans, though. And uh, so she starts to try and sell me these, uh, these fake Ray-Bans. And she tries to sell them to me for, like, way more, like, for really what normal Ray-Bans would cost. And I'm like, no, I'm not buying those. And so I set them back down on the counter, and I start to walk away. And she's like, hey, hey. As I'm walking by or walking away, and she actually she grabs the glasses, runs around the counter, comes, finds me, hits me on the shoulder, and then she says, No. And she sticks the Ray-Bans in my, or the fake Ray-Bans in my hand and says, You buy Ray-Ban. I'm like, What the heck, woman? You just hit me. And so I bought the Ray-Bans, and uh <laughs> but but this lady, she was <laughs> she was trying to sell me something. She she did sell me something fake, and she totally ripped me off. And that's exactly what hucksters do. And Paul distinctly says, Paul distinctly says that, that peddling has no place in his ministry. And, and peddling has no place in anything that has anything to do with handling the gospel. And let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. It's, a, it's an honest question. But, but why are you here tonight? I mean, why are we here tonight? I mean, I mean culturally, in our Christian culture, like gatherings like this are, are like the thing to do. And they're kind of elevated, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal or it's, or it's cool or it's awesome. And the bigger the gathering, the better. And, and the better the, the teacher, the better the worship leaders, the, you know, it's, it's just, it's almost, so, so my question is, why are we even here? You know, why are, we, why are we studying the Bible? Why are we preaching the gospel? Is it to worship the gathering? Is it to worship ourselves? Or is it to worship God? Paul wasn't in it for a salary, and he wasn't in it for uh, his reputation or for popularity. Paul was not in it for himself. He says, on the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Paul, he was in it for Jesus. He was not in it for himself, he was in it for Jesus. And so my question for you is, are you in it for Jesus or are you, are you in it for something else? Are you, are you here tonight for Jesus or did you come here tonight for someone or something else? I'm, I'm just gonna tell you that the next two things we're gonna look at are, are totally gonna bow up to and, and challenge any preconceived idea you've ever had of what it means to follow Jesus. 
and they're gonna bow up to and challenge any preconceived idea you've ever had of what it means to, or what it looks like to be empowered by the spirit of the living God. And the second thing is this. Paul was dead long before he was martyred. Paul was dead long before he was martyred. You look at chapter two, verse 15. Verse 15, it says, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Paul was dead long before he was martyred. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word aroma. Like some of you might think of a really bad smell. Uh, But for me, my mind goes to pleasant smells. And there's like three smells that my mind immediately thinks of when I hear the word aroma. Uh, The first is coffee. I love the smell of coffee. Anybody else in here with me on that one? Okay, a lot of you. I love the smell of coffee. Like the Folgers commercials, best part of wake. You know, so so, like that's totally me. You know, they, 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 uh, somebody fixes the coffee or the coffee's on a timer and, and then they see that, you know, the visible little smell lines going through the house and into the bedroom. And then like the dude wakes up like a zombie and he goes, you know, to the coffee. And then it kind of takes a break and you hear the narrator talk and it's showing the coffee and then it comes back and the guy's just, you know, or they're drinking coffee, he's bug-eyed because it's been like 10 takes, you know, to get the commercial right. But anyway, so I love, I love the smell of coffee. And uh, the second smell that comes to my mind is, this might be weird, I hope I'm not the only one on this, but uh, I love the smell of gasoline. Okay, good. So like, for the people who normally fill up their car, they, they go inside and, you know, use the restroom or buy something. I'm the one who stands out there because I want to smell the gasoline as it, as it goes in my car. I don't know. Uh, but the third one, and I know I'm not alone on this, the third smell that I think of when I think of the word aroma is the grill. I love the smell of the grill. When, when I lived in Lubbock, West Texas, which is where Texas Tech University is, I lived uh, not even a mile away from the football stadium. And, and my favorite days of the year uh, were game days. It was almost like Christmas because I was so close to the stadium and, and out there like everybody tailgates starting Saturday, or Friday night all the way that Saturday morning. If it's a night game, they tailgate all through Sunday. But you can smell the tailgate grill air uh, where I, my house was. And so Saturday mornings, I'd wake up and be like, oh, it's game day. And so I'd pop up, get my clothes on, run out to my porch, which really wasn't a porch, it was like a slab of concrete. But I'd, I'd go out there and I'd just, oh, and I would smell the most amazing grill tailgate air, all the good stuff that's cooking in the air and everything is amazing. I loved it. I looked forward to it. But you know, Everybody kind of has their perception of, of what heaven's going to be like. Like, like everybody kind of has their perception of what being welcomed into heaven is going to be like. I mean, think about what your perception is of that. What, what you think it's going to be like being welcomed into heaven. And let, let me tell you what I, I perceive it to be like. I mean, when we are welcomed into heaven, we, we are going to see multitudes upon multitudes of people people from every race, every country, every language, every, I mean, all kinds of people who are worshiping God. So we'll see multitudes of people, and then we'll see multitudes of heavenly angels doing the exact same thing, worshiping God. And then we'll look, and we will see who they're worshiping. And we will look at the throne and we'll see Jesus. But he won't be sitting on his throne. He'll be standing up, wearing a grill and apron, standing over a grill, flipping some hamburgers. And if you think I'm crazy, it's biblical. Look at this. Uh, 
Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. He's like, Oh, that smells good. Exodus 29, verse 18, he says, Then burn the entire ram on the altar. Throw that piece of meat on the grill. It's a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire. I mean, you go on Leviticus. He says, He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering. I mean, you go on and on and on and on. God loves the smell of a good piece of meat being cooked on the grill. Now, now I, make, I kind of make light of that, but this is really how the people in the Old Testament, they worshiped. And so you get to 2 Corinthians, and Paul says, for we are to God the aroma of Christ. Now, what does it mean when he says the aroma of Christ? There's a, there's a good verse that helps us get some commentary on this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus was a fragrant offering to God. Some, someone has to be given as a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. I mean, the Bible says that because of your sin, you have to die. Unless something that, that only God can institute can, can come in and be a substitute for that. It's not something that can come in and just sweep it under the rug. That, God is a just God. That would not be just. That would not be fair. But Jesus was the solution. Jesus was the substitution. So Jesus gave himself for all of humanity. He literally became the atoning sacrifice, forever pleasing to God for us by getting up on the altar, the cross, and dying for us. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, be imitators of that. And that's exactly what Paul did. He threw himself up on the altar as a sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, he threw or placed on on the altar all of his desires, all of his ambitions, all of his plans, all of his goals, all of his possessions, all of his money, all of his time, all of his health, everything he placed up on the altar. And and in our culture, it's... um, it's become such a kind of a heroic and, and romantic idea to say, oh, man, I want to give everything to the Lord. I want to give everything to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus. It's, it's, it's almost become like this romantic, heroic idea to say, man, I want to move to, to Africa and be a missionary for the rest of my life. Or, or I want to sell all my possessions and give them to the poor. I want to, uh, I want to, take every ounce of every second of time that I have here at UNT or TWU and I want to make the biggest impact here on campus no matter what the cost is. But the, but the reality is, and I don't think we understand this, we can't have that over there apart from what this is telling us in here, and that is sacrifice and even death. Sacrifice of everything we claim is ours and death to the old way that we knew before Jesus. Paul was dead long before he was martyred. He had literally died to everything he knew before Jesus. He left everything he knew before Jesus, all of it. He left it all once and for all, he left it. I mean, Paul's ministry was so powerful and transforming because because he literally offered his body as both a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1, but as he offered his body as this living sacrifice, it turned out that for him, that ended up being a literal sacrifice because most people believe that in Rome, he was martyred, killed because of faith in Jesus. So the reason Paul's ministry was so powerful and transforming is because not only was Paul not in it for himself, he was in it for Jesus, but, but Paul was dead long before he was martyred. 
And it's his sacrifice and it's our sacrifice that God desires to use to bring people to him. Unfortunately, um, about a week and a half ago, I had to do my first funeral and it was um, for a student in our ministry who two two weeks ago today passed away. And, um, you know, it was really interesting um, in, in, in preparing for that and thinking through that. It forces you to really think about some stuff. And one of the things that it forced me to think about as I'm, as I'm thinking about what to say at this guy's funeral is, I mean, what, what would I want people to say at my funeral? And, and here, here's, you know, in, in studying this text and another text I'm about to show you, here's what I hope somebody would say about me at my funeral. And I feel like we should all hope that people would say this about us. And that's this, Austin, or insert your name, was dead long before he died. You know, uh, Mark 8, 35 says, for whoever wants to save his life, Jesus talking, forever, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. According to the Bible, you can't live, truly live until you have first died. So what about you? Have you died yet? Are you in this for Jesus or are you in this for something or someone else? And then what about you? Have you died yet? There's one more thing, one more way in which Paul characterizes his ministry and it's from verse 14, continuing to work backwards in chapter two. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Jesus, I just pray that as we look at this last part, you would, you would help us to see really the image here. I pray that you'd help us to see this, get this, understand this. And, and I know that there are people in this room who have not yet surrendered their life to you. And I pray specifically for those people and for those who maybe think they have but haven't at all. I pray that you would open their eyes once and for all to what you want to and need to do in their life to take away their sin. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so look at this verse again, chapter two, verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Okay, so apart from understanding the historical context of this, we're, we're not gonna understand at all what he's saying. Um, so, so I wanna take a minute and explain the history here. But in order to do that, I need three people to help me out. Three, three volunteers. Uh, okay, one, two, three. There you go. Y'all, y'all well, first I saw raise your hands. So y'all come up here. I will do my best not to embarrass y'all too much. Just kidding, I won't. Um, as, they're, as they're coming out here, yeah, just come on up here and y'all just stand right here. Thank you. Just like a line right there, that'd be great. So, so as, as they're getting situated, listen to this. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, this, this phrase, triumphal procession, is loaded with historical meaning. And there's two angles from which we need to look at it tonight. The first angle is the angle of the victor, or specifically the general. Now, historically speaking here, at the time Paul was writing this letter, Rome was like the beast nation. They were the superpower of the world, and they were in growth mode. But in order for a nation then to grow, they had to constantly be going to battle and conquering more land and conquering more people. And so what would happen is is you had these multiple generals of the Roman army who would take 
smaller armies within the bigger army, and they'd take them out in, in, on the outskirts of the empire, and they would do battle with different, uh, different cities, different people, different nations. And when they would defeat one of these people, not just, you know, there's a difference between completely defeating and then like going and winning a battle. We're not talking about winning a battle, coming back to camp, still having to fight more battles to defeat these people. We're talking about totally defeating these people. When the general would lead the army to totally defeat these people and they, they had total victory, they would come back and in order to celebrate that and to honor that general, they would have this triumphal procession, kind of like a Super Bowl parade, through the, town, or through the streets of, of the downtown area. And so people would line the streets and the, and the general, as well as some other things I'll explain here in a second, would be paraded through the streets. So, so you have that image. Okay, this, this phrase, triumphal procession, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. And I wanna read that to you because this is really cool. Colossians chapter two, verse 15 says this. He forgave us all our sins. Jesus forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities here it is. It's phrased differently, but it's, it's the same thing. He, he says, he made a public spectacle of them. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So when Paul says this phrase, triumphal procession, what he's talking about and the picture he's going for is of God triumphing over Satan. He defeated Satan in his rebellion and his rebellious army and his rebellious followers. And he defeated him totally and completely, not partially, but completely at the cross. So that's the first angle that we have to understand this picture by. There's a, there's a second angle. Listen, listen to what he says again. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal uh, procession. So there's another angle. There's the victor's angle. Now there's the defeated people's angle. Um, and for the defeated people, uh, I want you to kind of get a full image here, okay? Um, you had, you, you, when they would win the battle... You had the general who would be paraded through the town on maybe, maybe he was carried, you know, I think of Egyptian, you know, people carrying a guy up on top or whatever, or maybe like, uh, maybe like he was riding a donkey or basically the equivalent of a convertible back then, okay? And so he'd be riding in the front and everybody's cheering as they, as they crowd the streets. Behind the general, you would have, uh, you would have uh, his entire army that went to battle. Okay, so they're parading through the town. And, uh, and then but behind the entire army, you'd have other people who were carrying and, and bringing along with them the spoils of war. And the, and the spoils of war includes a few things. Um, the spoils of war included first uh, animals, um, animals like, you know, goats, <laughs> sheep. Uh, there was no connection in me handcuffing you first. Uh, uh, goats and sheep and, and cattle and, you know, horses. So you'd have people that would be leading these animals through the streets um, behind the general, behind, uh, behind the army, okay? Then behind the animals, you'd have other people who would be uh, carrying the other spoils of war, the gold, the silver, the valuable things of war uh, that they would, you know, take from the people that they had conquered. Um, so, so you'd have the general, uh, you would have the, uh, you would have the army, then you would have, uh, then you'd have the, the animals, and then you'd have the other valuable things from war. And then in the very back, in the very back, you would have the prisoners of war, the people that had survived the battle, that they had taken captive, and now they were parading them through uh, the streets. Now, now I want you to uh, imagine what this must have been like. 
I mean, this must have been absolutely uh, a crazy scene. People lining the streets, tons and tons. I mean, there's a long line. This is a big parade, okay? And in the very back, you have this single file, <clears throat> solemn line of prisoners who would all be chained together. So they're probably walking like this. And so Paul says, but, but thanks be to God who always, always leads us in triumphal procession. Here's my question. Where does Paul see himself in this picture? I mean, how we answer this, and, and we need, there's only one way to answer this, but, but how we answer this is huge because this tells us where we are in this picture. And we absolutely need to know where we are in this picture. Where do you think Paul had, had the people, or had, had himself in this picture, and, and essentially us in this picture? I can tell you this, it wasn't towards the front. Paul, and, and let, me, let me tell you this, it'll probably help you to answer the question by, by first pointing out this, where were we before the battle? Scripture is very clear that before, before the battle, you and I, every single person in this room, no matter how bad or good you think you are, you were on the enemy's side. You were following Satan. Now, I know that's kind of a bold thing to say, but the reality is all of us were on that side. And so it's very clear that what Paul's saying is after our defeat and God's total victory in Christ, we are now enslaved to a new ruler. Paul was not in it for himself. Paul. You're going to let us out of this, right? Maybe. I don't know where the key is, so. But don't, but don't freak out. Don't freak out. Paul wasn't in it for himself. Paul was dead long before he had been martyred. And Paul had been conquered, captured, and enslaved. Now, let me, let me read this. Romans 16, or 6, verse 18 says this. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Listen to that again. He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is huge for two reasons. One, it tells us this. We belong to Jesus. Those who have been conquered, captured, and enslaved by Jesus means that we belong to Jesus. And the second thing it says is we, we are destined to serve Jesus, to be his slaves. And so the reason that Paul's ministry was so powerful and transforming is because he'd been conquered, captured, and enslaved. Now, there's two things I want you to notice. First of all, try and, try and get out of these handcuffs. Okay, don't, 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 hurt your people. don't hurt your friends over here, okay? Yeah, these are real handcuffs. Okay, ow, okay, that, that was... That was right. try, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Give me your hand again. That's not right. Yeah. I like that. I was trying to be nice. I didn't want to make them tight, but now... <laughs> Sneaky. You can't break these, okay? You might have slipped out because I didn't put it too tight, but you cannot break these. You absolutely can't break these, and that's important because of this. Once we are conquered and we are captured and enslaved by Christ, he will never let us go, ever. You can't even try to get free if you wanted to. You know, there's a verse of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, ooh, Ephesians 5, I believe, and he says that, that the Holy Spirit is a deposit given to those who, who put their faith in Christ, guaranteeing, guaranteeing what is to come. Once you, are, once you are enslaved to Christ, that's it. You aren't getting loose ever again. But there's a second thing, and that's this. 
Notice uh, verses 14 through 17. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this. Notice the pronouns that he uses as he writes. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men, plural, sent from God. Every single pronoun he uses is plural. And up to this point, I've been talking to us as individuals. But the reality is this, watch. Don't knock the guitars over. We move together. Once we have been captured, conquered, and enslaved by Christ, we move together. These chains unify us. These chains unify us. And man, when we are enslaved by Christ, to Christ, together, unified, we, come a ve- we become a very dangerous force to be reckoned with. Paul had been conquered, captured, and enslaved. What about you? Have you yet surrendered to Jesus? Are you wearing these chains yet? Paul's ministry impacted so many lives and and transformed so many lives because he was empowered by the spirit of the living God. And there's no such thing as a person empowered by the spirit of the living God until they have first been conquered, captured, and enslaved by Jesus. And, And you know what the irony in this is? A few verses later in chapter three, Paul says, verse 17, he says, now the Lord, or now Jesus is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. You know, these chains, they, they, uh, they represent clearly captivity and slavery, but just as they represent captivity and slavery, they also represent salvation and freedom. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. And, and, and you think, okay, so I'm free now. Well, you think you're free, but you're enslaved to sin and death and Satan. Only he can set you free from that. So they, 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 they represent captivity and slavery to Christ, but they also represent salvation and freedom from sin, death, and Satan. And those of you who are still trying to resist Jesus, you've got to surrender. You absolutely must surrender. You, You can either surrender now and live, or you can be defeated later and die. Uh, There is a, uh, there's an island uh, that I had the opportunity to visit when I was in, in Africa. I'm trying to unlock you guys. Uh, there's an island that I had the opportunity to visit when I was in Africa, and uh, I'll get that one off in a minute. Right. I'll finish in a minute. Y'all can go sit down. Give them a hand for helping out. I'll get him off in a minute. We need to finish this. Uh, when, I was, when I was in Africa, there, there was an island that we went to, and uh, it was called Gore Island, G-O-R-E-E. You can actually Google it, okay? Um, I, I suggest you should. And it's a very historical island. This island was uh, one of the main islands that was used in the slave trade years, years ago. And on this island, there is a, 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 a big old fortress of a building. And in that building, which we toured, uh, we saw all kinds of things, um, among them, we saw 
uh, the cells where, where, the, where slaves would be kept before being shipped off uh, to, to the Americas. But one of the, the craziest things that they showed us in this, in this island was you walk to the very back of the building and there's just uh, an opening. It's just a door with no, no actual door on it. And they called that the door of no return. And the reason that they called that the door of no return is because when, when people went out that door, they were never seen again. Uh, you, you look out the door and all you see is endless ocean. It's the Atlantic. And they would go out that door because they'd be taken and put on the ships to be taken across to the Americas to be slaves in the Americas. And so when, when, when the slaves would go out that door, uh, they would never see the family, their friends, or their homeland uh, ever, ever again. And let me tell you why I share that story. I share that story because I'm afraid that there are multiple people, probably many people in this room tonight who've not yet walked through that door. I'm I'm afraid that there are many people tonight who've not yet walked through that door as, as slaves to righteousness, slaves to Christ, captured, conquered, and enslaved to Christ. And so let me just tell you this. My, my prayer tonight is simply that you, that you would walk through that door. My prayer is that you would walk through that door. And, and I've never done this before at Overflow, but I want to do it tonight. I feel very convicted to do it tonight. Uh, I, I, um, a prayer does not save you. God working in your heart is what saves you. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, part of my testimony, and I think many people in here who are Christians, part of their testimony is their relationship with Jesus began by them talking to Jesus and, and telling Jesus what they believed and felt in their heart. And for me, that was praying to Jesus and saying, I finally think I realize, and by your grace, Jesus, you've helped me to realize that I have sin in my life that is separating me from God. And, in, and unless somebody steps in that gap between you and me, God, then I'm gonna die in my sin. And so I need you, Jesus. I need what you did on the cross to save me from my sin.